Welcome to episode 215 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Today, I'm going to wade into the controversy raging over the Canadian carbon tax. Last week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on Thursday announced a three-year carbon tax exemption for home heating oil and higher carbon tax rebates for people in rural areas, while the federal government pilots a three-year project to promote heat pump adoption in Atlantic Canada. Economists have been outraged. Some have called it the death of Canadian carbon policy. Some premiers have called for carbon tax, quote unquote, carve-outs for their provinces. In all the political hullabaloo over the, la over the past week, no one has, has asked what I think needs to be asked, has the carbon tax worked? No one except for today's guest, Alden Donnelly, who has been working on carbon policy and carbon markets for 30 years. So welcome to the interview, Alden. Thanks for having me. This is a swamp, a political swamp, this issue of the carbon tax, because we have we have uh, economists rarely get this worked up about things, but boy, are they worked up about this. And uh, they've been all over social media. They've been all over the news media talking about this, the death of the Canadian carbon policy. We've got the number of the premiers uh, like Danielle Smith and Scott Mullen, Saskatchewan, who have been demanding carve outs. We've got uh, even, you know, Alberta NDP leader, Rachel Notley, who introduced uh, carbon pricing, I mean, sort of modern carbon pricing in uh, in Alberta in 2015, has been siding with her, you know, conservative opponent on this issue. It, it's really, it's really kind of bizarre. And I wanted to get you on because you and I have been talking about this for a long time. I think I first interviewed you in maybe 2017, and you have been a contrarian around carbon pricing and carbon price. You said that there are other ways to do this that are more effective and that effective that essentially, you know, Canadian policymakers have been misled by some of the economists, the academic economists who who focus on the theory of carbon pricing and carbon taxes, but, but you know, in the real world, it doesn't work as well. So I want to start this interview with your background. Let's establish your bona fides uh, why you we should listen to you on this topic. So give us a you know a, a little uh, overview of your experience over the last 30 years in this space. Um, to, to begin with, I'm an, I'm an old lady and I started uh, studying and quite uh, focused and committed uh, to um, uh, epidemiology uh, research and, and recommendations with regard to the distribution and determination of disease and, uh, and, and solutions shifted over into a consulting space where my my focus from about 1986 on was um, uh, environmental solutions but particularly where they interface with the inter with the adoption of new technology uh, uh, and in 1989 I was part of a consulting team that was brought together by the wonderful Eric Hydus that was commissioned by the Canadian uh, Council of Ministers of Environment to examine whether that US cap and trade model thing might be worth adopting in Canada to control criteria pollutant smog precursor and, and, and other emissions. So I've been looking at this stuff since before then. Uh, okay. In the mid 1990s, as a consultant, uh, three, independent of each other, three of my large industrial customers came to me and asked me if I could look at what they called this greenhouse gas issue uh, and, and generate a report on a sort of what that might mean in terms of asset valuations. These were large Canadian companies that you know, we thought we would think of as very huge, but they were just embarking on a new stage of investment and buying assets outside Canada and they wanted to figure out where to integrate greenhouse gas emission considerations in their, in their um, investment strategies. Um, and uh, after a while, I went back to them and said, listen, I could you know, write one report to all of you that's ill-informed 
to the best of my ability, but still in, ill-informed and, uh, and charge you each the same amount of money and you won't get much value out of that. Is it possible, and they said yes, that you would just get together and we all pretend that last week there was a regulation worldwide. You have to reduce your worldwide, corporate worldwide emissions by 10% absolutely 10 years from now relative to today's levels. Now that doesn't sound like a lot, but these were all companies that were planning big expansions. So that was a big challenge. And then I said, so why don't we work together as a consortium? These companies were competitors. They didn't like each other very much. This wasn't about reaching a common consensus about what good policy should look like. But let's work on three streams, which is how would you, so we learn how you would change your approach to business in that context. And let's take it really seriously. Let's, you know, let's pretend it's real. When I tell this story to Americans, the first thing they say is, God, that's so Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> and the original founding members were then West Coast Energy, which is now known as Spectra, Trans Canada Pipelines now, TC Energy, and, uh, and Trans Alta Utilities. Word went around and by October 1996, we incorporated a not-for-profit that by then was up to seven members. And within three years, it was 14 of Canada's 20 largest corporate greenhouse gas emitters. And one of the experiments we did was um, uh, develop and enter into, actually sign 10 to 12 year forward contracts committing us to buy greenhouse gas. We called them emission reduction credits. We didn't use the term offsets meant something entirely differently back then uh, uh, from suppliers. Uh, and the whole, again, the agenda wasn't to become the biggest, you know, speculative buyers of, of credits around, but I did one-off projects in very different categories and everybody was sharing in the, the learning experience of putting those contracts in place. So they were real contracts, they were binding. When the Canadian companies committed to buy credits, if the supplier kept their commitments, the Canadian companies paid for them, uh, whether or not those credits would ever be useful. And quite frankly, that turned out in, to be the most efficient way to learn about how the market might work by pretending it was in place. Uh, by 2002, the members of the consortium, it was called GEMCO, the Greenhouse Emissions Management Consortium, were ranked, I don't, I didn't do the analysis. World Bank said we were the largest private sector speculative buyer of carbon credits in the world in 2002. Now again, being the largest in 2002 was small <laughs> compared to what being the largest today would be, but it was a very important and useful experience. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll cut off there with this, this next little part. In 2003, the first uh, draft of the European cap and trade emission trading rules, um, the uh, proposed design of the Chicago Climate Exchange, and the first draft of the potential Reggie market, so US Northeast states, uh, greenhouse gas, rules for power generators were published for uh, public comment. And when I saw all three sets of those rules, I had to go back to the GEMCO members and say, these market designs, and it broke my heart because it wasn't just the government, two government led designs, this included Chicago Climate Exchange, are so faulty that these markets have to crash and burn within five to seven years. So probably what we should do is, is, is pull out and see if I can flip the contracts in your portfolio now, because if I can get any return on those forward agreements, it, the best return I would get now. And I got permission to do that. And I wasn't able to flip all of our contracts. I didn't make a huge return, but the, the companies didn't lose any money on it. And in fact, in most cases, and this was the right decision, the companies, re focused more on what we do internally than that, but it proved to be the right decision to do that. So 
my takeaway from this is, is that you essentially created a, a voluntary carbon market with your 14 clients. The credits were created by the support for entering into contracts with other suppliers who were, who knows what they were doing, but they were doing something to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. They were funded by your clients, which then generated the credits for your clients. Yes. So I, I funded the first three projects in Canadian history that paid landfill operators to capture methane and pump it into uh, the, the energy supply chain. Um, I was the first person in the world to buy carbon credits from farmers and ranchers who adopted better management practices. I signed that contract in March, 1999. It committed my companies to pay for a minimum of 2.8 million credits over 10 years. And if everybody exercised all their options up to 10 million credits, um, I financed the capping, or I didn't, the <laughs> members did, I signed the piece of paper, but um, uh, uh, we used a credit purchase to finance the capping of the stacks of a gas processing plant in the Texas Panhandle, where the CO2 that was captured was compressed and injected into um, uh, semi-depleted oil wells in 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 Texas. So I I I I did a bunch of one-offs and the whole idea was the companies would like the would learn how to do that, like the experience or not like it. And then if they went off and did more of same on their own, that was their business. So that's what we did. Now I we should point out here that you're not an economist, you're a lawyer. Correct? No, no, I I'm not either. Uh, I have an an undergraduate degree in economics from UBC. And I completed all of the uh, coursework, but not my uh, thesis to get a master's degree in uh, epidemiology from the UBC School of Medicine. Okay, um, got it. I I saw I read a bio for for you that said you were a lawyer. So bad. I, I, be, I, we'll blame a, it on the bio writer. No, no, I'm not a lawyer. But every lawyer I do business with would be on the floor laughing right now because. I tend to have opinions about the law. It drives them crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Well, look, okay, that's the first thing we want to talk about. We've uh, we've established, I think, that you have expertise in this, and going back uh, some time, uh, you and you've you've kept up on the various studies and and papers that have been produced by various economists about the uh, about carbon pricing, and. Let's talk about that. So give me your take on the way that economists, academic economists, have approached this issue. So first, can I tell you a little anecdote? As long as I was the big carbon credit buyer, I was the most welcome person on the international conference and cocktail party circuit that you've you've ever seen. You know, I, I, I could give 50 speeches a year if I was willing to do so. So in 2003, when I had realized I was pulling my guys out of the marketplace, I thought, well, if this isn't going to work, what's the right answer? And I was getting ready to give a speech in Chicago at the annual meeting of the International Emissions to Trading Association. And I was preparing to stand in front of everybody and say, well, got it wrong. We're out. And I assumed that someone in the audience would ask me, well, if the cap and trade stuff we're talking about isn't going to work. What's the right answer? Uh, well, I don't have a PhD, but considering myself a well-trained economist, I assumed my response was going to be a carbon tax. And at the time, there were nine different carbon tax regimes that were very different in design that had been fully operational for 10 years or more. Uh, and so I studied all nine of them because I thought, I would say carbon tax, and I thought someone in the audience would say, well, which one? And I wanted to know the answer to that question. It was to my great surprise that my research made me see that none of the carbon taxes were working as reported or effective. They were all regressive taxes. There were lots of, they were creating more problems than, than benefits even though all of the academic literature was giving them great reviews. And as a well-trained economist, I just thought, I, I wasn't going out to prove the carbon tax wrong. I was going out to find the right way to do it. Uh, so I was astounded. I didn't know what to, to do next. Um, I'll, I'll stop with that 
that history, but that but that compelled me to read everything the academics were writing, to debate, to review, to compare the real life data to what the academics were saying was happening in those markets. I went through, you know, it took me six months to discover they didn't work. They still aren't working. It probably took me five years to start forming opinions about why they don't work. And my my bottom line is, for us to proceed to implement effective policy, whatever that policy package is, we have to be asking ourselves, why has what everybody is saying must work, not worked for 25 years? Because we have to move on and we we got to get there. Now, I want to quote from uh, an episode that I, of Energy Talks, an early one, episode 16 that I did in 2021, uh, with uh, Danny Cullenward, Dr. Danny Cullenward, who, I, if I remember correctly, is an economist, a professor of economics at the at Stanford. And he and another economist, Victor uh, G. David, wrote a book called Making Climate Policy Work. And let me let me uh, read an excerpt from the interview that supports what you're saying. If you look at the history of climate strategy, particularly at international climate negotiations, Carbon trading, carbon pricing has been at the heart of that for decades. But when we look on the ground at the things we see really moving emissions outcomes in serious ways, we don't see very many places where carbon pricing has been the primary driver of change. And Colin Word and David made an, a, an argument on a couple of fronts. Uh, one is that political opposition to carbon pricing, and we boy, we see the opposition in Canada to the carbon carbon tax, uh, basically blunts uh, the effectiveness of carbon policy. Uh, two, uh, the fact that it's very often, and you've made this point to me on a number of occasions, that even if you have carbon pricing in place, it's very often accompanying regulations, uh, standards, uh, industrial policies like subsidies that are actually doing the heavy lifting around emissions reductions. It may be credited to the to uh, carbon pricing, but in fact, it's not the carbon pricing that's making the reductions. Have I have I got that? Does that sum that, up your position? That's right. If you look at every pro carbon tax report in the public domain that's been written by the leading academics of that theory in Canada, the first line of the report is. The most efficient measure to address climate change risk is a carbon tax. Then they run their models. And every time you look, at, they always then add a few page layers. Of course, the carbon tax has to be associated with complementary regu regulations. Then when you read their own analysis, more than 80% of the reductions they associate with the implementation of the policies come from the regulations, not from the tax. And they don't give you any sort of, you know, that the cap tax is most efficient is just stated as fact. None of the data supports that statement in their own reports. What's the, what, so the message there is all of the, we should tax carbon reports actually make the case that the carbon tax isn't very effective in my view. But the thing that concerns me is what that means we should be debating is what does effective, efficient, regulation look like. I would argue that if you look at the package of regulations that are policy lead policy influencers have been promoting consistently, it's the same package since 2007. My position is it's a pretty scary, not effective set of regulations. I would offer there are alternative regulations that we should be considering, but we're not even having that debate. So are we now going to move from the carbon tax that wasn't going to work all along to a not fully considered, badly defined suite of regulations? Risk is very high. Let's not do that. Let's move forward into a more fulsome debate before we do anything else. Yeah, a lot of the criticisms that come from economists about the uh, about the uh, Atlantic Canada pause on heating oil carbon tax, or the carbon tax on uh, on heating oil. It, it it's almost like you know there's some integrity of the carbon pricing system that we have in place now, uh, and somehow this 
this exemption violates that. But if you look at, I, I, I'm writing a column and I, I just off the top of my head, I came up with a number of regulations uh, that the federal government has brought in. And I'll give you some of them. The clean electricity regulation, the clean fuel standard, electric vehicle sales mandate, an oil and gas emissions cap, tens of billions in subsidies for consumers and businesses to adopt clean energy technologies like, like heat pumps. I mean, we've essentially done what you said and what Colin Word and, and David said, which is that we put in place all of these regulations and industrial policies and you know standards and mandates and so on. And it's such a hodgepodge now of regulations and all of all of that with along with carbon pricing that I have to look at that and go, okay, so you carved out a little bit of an exemption for like 3% of the Canadian population. And that's, uh, that somehow is killing is the death of Canadian carbon pricing policy. Look at all these other things. And that's just at the federal level, never mind at the provincial level where you've got your a whole other set of different regulations and policies on at, from depending on the province. So, and, and, and do I believe that the intent, I'm totally on side with the intent, um, but do I believe we're going to see the death of the electricity regulation, the low carbon fuel standard regulation within three years? If we don't stop right now, have a more fulsome technical debate, yes. Can we implement uh, uh, regulations in those spaces that are modified versions of what we've got and have something that works and lasts? Yes. Are we having the conversations we need to have to make sure that happens? No. Yes. And and, yeah, no. And let's make a point here. And I mean, this is really important because I can, I can, I can imagine the, 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 what's going through the minds of some of the most of maybe most of the folks who are going to listen to this interview which is that somehow maybe, you know, Markham and Alden have joined forces with the climate deniers, uh, the climate slow walkers, uh, various conservative parties across Canada, which have opposed carbon pricing, you know, the Canadian and conservative, uh, the Conservative Party of Canada and its leader, Pierre Polyev, have got an axe the tax campaign going on, have have had for months. They've said that if they, you know, the CPC forms government next in 2025, that the the, the consumer carbon tax is toast. They're, they're going to get rid of it. That's not the case. And in fact, you make the argument that uh, you come from a little bit of the left of center on this. You want to see effective policy in place to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And this just isn't it. And we need to rethink where we're going with this. So, but, but also let's look at the, inf the information that we're all receiving for the most part is just, is just wall to wall confirmation bias. So I'm gonna ask you a couple of questions. What two provinces are the only provinces in Canada with any hope of being on track to complying with Canada's 2030 Paris Accord commitments? BC and Quebec. No, BC ranks number nine out of 13 provinces and territory in terms of that performance. Number one is Nova Scotia, number two is New Brunswick and year to year they switch positions. I would not have guessed that. What was the first jurisdiction in the world and is still to this day the only jurisdiction in the world that has a legally binding absolute emissions cap for their electricity sector? Now, I do know the answer to this because you gave it to me in an email and it's Nova Scotia. And it's primarily because in 2009, they asked you to draft the regulations that you're talking about. I, I didn't do it by myself. I did it with an amazing group of civil servants. Nevertheless, so, you were involved with that, and and it proved to it proved to be effective. Correct. Their emissions today are province wide absolutely thirty six percent below two thousand and five levels. Forty percent is our twenty thirty target. That they are between thirty five and forty percent below two thousand and five levels now on an absolute per capita and per real dollar GDP. Um, basis and again still the only jurisdiction in the entire world that has absolutely capped greenhouse gas emissions so there's a lot of jurisdictions that have phased out coal but they've been replacing it with gas and emissions haven't necessarily gone down 
why do Canadians not know that Nova Scotia is a world leader? And by the way, for, for, for many years, the federal government agreed to essentially exempt Nova Scotia from the carbon price, the back, backstop, because of their leading performance in terms of real emission reductions. And then all of a sudden the Fed said, no, you gotta have a tax. So you know what we actually said to Nova Scotia? You have found a way to reduce your emissions at less cost than Ontario. So we're going to impose a tax on you because <laughs> you found a more efficient way to achieve the greenhouse gas reduction goal. Like historians are going to look back and say, boy, there were, what was it about that cannabis in Canada? It must have been really good. Well, and, and I can see where the feds are coming from because the feds are going to say, okay, everybody has to have we have to have uniformity of, of policy, more or less, across the country, and we can't let Nova Scotia completely uh, out of the carbon pricing policy because then we're just going to open up a can of worms and other provinces will want to do the same thing. I'm sure that was the argument. Yeah. So why is the policy you must have a price? Why isn't the policy you must reduce your emissions? Yeah, I I, I I get it. I get it. I, that That's a very good question that we've never asked and, and, and we don't have an answer for at this point. The carbon tax story is just for show, not for real. Now, I got to say, I want to make sure everybody understands. I totally understand why every elected official thinks it's for real because their advisors keep telling them it is, but it isn't anywhere. Right. And And it's time to say, wait a second, we have substituted some select means tax for the goal, reduce emissions. We have to get back to saying, how do we actually reduce emissions? And you know, we know how to do it. Be, be, you know, in 1984, after 30 years of international conference and cocktail party circuit, debating how to stop carving the hole in the lower ozone layer, three or four people, they were all guys from Ottawa, figured out the right answer. It was called the Montreal Protocol. Um, and Canada, after 30 years of making no progress, Canada introduced the Montreal Protocol in 84. Um, most of the nations worldwide signed it by 89. And the hole in the ozone layer has been shrinking and started shrinking less than 10 years after we all got inside. This has to be Canada's Montreal Protocol for Greenhouse Gases Moment. We've done it before. We know how to do it. The Montreal Protocol approach to greenhouse gases does not look like anything like what we're talking about right now in Canadian policy circles. Okay. So what we're talking about here, just to make it, it make it clear, is we've had one model that has been promoted by, and I have to say, I mean, I've interviewed a, a lot of the economists who have supported uh, carbon tax over the years, and and th these are uh, sincere and smart people and do who do good work, and, and I'm not going to bash them because uh, I've interviewed them and and I and and one of the reasons why you know I talk started talking to you six years ago and we're now having this conversation is I will admit I was a hard sell. Alden, you'll confirm that because you and I have had many conversations over the years, and I and I didn't want to be seen to be undermining the carbon policy, the carbon tax and carbon pricing initiatives, uh, policy initiatives that were going on at the federal level or at the provincial level, because God knows we need to get our greenhouse gas emissions under control. We are one of the largest, if not the largest per capita producer of GHGs in the world. This, and if we're going to be competitive in a clean energy future, we have to get our carbon intensity down. That is just, a, I believe that utterly. And I thought the carbon pricing was the way to go. But now, given the six years since you and I started talking about it, I think I can say, you know, maybe it's not working and we need to have another conversation about models uh, that might work. And this seems to be an inflection, in, uh, inflection point, a moment in time where people are focused on the efficacy, the effectiveness of car the carbon tax in Canada. And it seems to be a good time now to at least say we should consider other models. So let's talk. You tell us what the Montreal Protocol is and how it works. 
So, um, and I have to admit, I, I learned all this stuff late. I don't know why. So when I'm sitting there saying, well, gee, tax isn't working. And, and the, the version of cap and trade that I had been promoting for 15 years wasn't working. Uh, finally, I sort of said, oh my goodness, maybe I should just look back in Canada, US, Europe, Japan. If I go back to 1960, I found 44 precedents where one or all of those jurisdictions made have great success stories. We reduced water pollution, wastewater releases, or air emissions. So I set myself the task of saying, of, of looking at every one of those precedents and saying, how did we, get, how did, how, how did that happen? How did that get done? And I thought I was going to come up with 15 different options and then have to figure out what the best of the 15 options were. And in 40 of the 44 precedents, how we got it done was the same way every time, no matter what nation I was in, no matter what the environmental challenge was. We didn't, as we're doing now, tax the pollutant we were trying to reduce. We definitely didn't have our governments mint permits to pollute and sell them to industry and give free permits to industry they felt needed it, which is what we're talking about doing now. We, we didn't focus on the consumer, we focused on the supplier. So it's how we got the lead out of gasoline, it's how we got the ozone depleting substance, substances out of refrigerant chemicals, which were carving the hole. We said supplier, I'll, I'm gonna say the Montreal Protocol in greenhouse gas language. We said supplier, if you deliver any energy product into Canada, um, I don't care whether you, Markham, sell gasoline, diesel, and, and heating fuel, and I, Alden, sell electricity, natural gas, and propane. We convert all of our deliveries into Canada into megawatt hour equivalents. We report our global supply chain fossil carbon content and losses per megawatt hour delivered in Canada. And uh, we got to reduce it at a rate of 5% per, per, per annum. And going back to the wording in the original get the lead out of gasoline law or the Montreal protocol, in the Canadian regulations, we said in any combination of obligated parties, suppliers can comply jointly, which meant if you and I in those days stapled our compliance reports together and you were over and I was under, but we averaged out at 5%, we were in compliance. The result of that, you can comply jointly provision was that the private sector created, managed a secondary market for overcompliance credits. Government wasn't making money selling you the right to permit, to, to pollute. In every precedent where government sells rights to pollute, government quickly abandons the commitment to reduce the emissions because they become addicted to the revenues and the tax base for the revenues is the pollution. And every precedent going back to 1960 is consistent in that regard as well. So we know how to do this. Um, it's not about government running a, a, a market where government sets prices and government prescribes solutions. The right regulation doesn't say to the marketplace, put the ethanol in it said get the get the lead out or get we, the ghgs out or get the ghgs out every time we've done we've said take the pollution precursor out of the supply chain not telling them how to do it not prescribing the new product and service mix and not prescribing price every time we've done it that way for every challenge we've approached that way Back to 1960, the market delivered the, the environmental goal faster and cheaper than we ever imagined possible. And the rate of innovation was off the scale high because they were competing to re-secure market share under that constraint. They had to innovate to beat the other guy. So if our government is saying, I think EVs is the answer, 
And I think the floor and ceiling prices to emissions in the OVPS is this, and I have to get the tax price right, we're, we're not going anywhere. And our precedent, and why did it take me 15 years to actually look at the history to see that? <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I apologize. Well, you know, look, you know, fair enough. This is, I, I get it. I get it. And I want to bring up as an example, because uh, the uh, oil and gas industry is one that I report on a lot uh, and have done a lot of work on the greenhouse gas emissions, particularly from the oil sands. So let's talk about that a little bit, because you and I had a chance to to discuss it um, off air uh, yesterday and the day before. And there is a thing, and you mentioned it, OBPS, so output-based output based pricing, which essentially says is designed to stop carbon leakage. So if there is uh, an industry like cement, for example, that faces uh, competition from uh, foreign, faces foreign competition, what you don't want is to chase that industry out of Canada into a jurisdiction where it isn't, there are no restrictions, no pricing, no any any uh, attempts to lower greenhouse gas emissions. All you've done is move the the carbon, uh, the emission creation somewhere else, as yeah. opposed to keeping it where you can reduce it. Yeah. So that's the that's the idea behind output based pricing. You 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 give your uh, trade energy intensive trade exposed industry like cement you give yeah. it a discount, a big discount to begin with, to so that it's competitive, but it's still getting a bit of a price signal. And then over time, you reduce the discount until you get to a point where the full carbon price is being applied. That's the theory, correct? Yeah. Now yeah. look at the oil sands. Uh, they, they've been under this since, oh, 2016, 2017, when the NDP government in Alberta brought in the the CCIR, the, I think, Competitive Carbon in, Incentive Regulation. They've and, actually been under a, a version of it since 2005. Oh, yes, 2007, actually, ESCR. Sorry, uh, spe yeah, it was specific Gas emit Emission Re Regulation. Yeah, it was okay, signed so in fine. 2005, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, but but the reason I bring up CCIR is, is it used output-based pricing. And so... What essentially what you in Alberta at this moment, and we were talking rough numbers because it's different for different facilities now, but generally, the uh, the oil sands company pays the full sixty five dollar a ton carbon tax on twenty percent of its output, and it pays no tax whatsoever on the remaining eighty percent. And so you and I looked at Suncor, the sustain their sustainability report, and Suncor says. As of today, in 2023, we pay 48 cents a barrel for carbon tax. That's the price signal that that is supposed to get us to reduce our emissions. And between now and 2032, so the next decade, our average price will be a dollar seventy per barrel. Uh, and this, and by 2030, the carbon price goes up to 170 dollars a ton, right? Okay, yeah. so basically, this is at a time when the price that they're getting, depending on the, the, the grade of the product, whether it's raw bitumen, which is about $60 a barrel, and if it's synthetic crude oil, which is around $90, $90 a barrel, $0.48 cents a barrel ain't nothing. It, it's no price signal whatsoever. The company just absorbs it and goes on essentially emitting the way it always has. So I'll, 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 I'll add a, a factor to that. We've decided that the oil producers are energy-intensive trade exposed. So they, they're they only exposed to the carbon tax. Uh, when you said 80%, by the way, government has proposed to change that to 90%. <laughs> so <laughs> just so you know. Oh, well, let's make it worse. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this fits in so, nicely with our conversation. But it's a little, it's a little more complicated than that. We're, the, the, the whole idea is that the, the, the regulation is designed so that only no more than 10% of all of the barrels that are produced are exposed to the carbon tax. But if the producer reduces carbon intensity per barrel by 25%, but doubles their output, so Canada's nationwide greenhouse gas liability goes up, they're credited for creating reductions under the LBP. <laughs> so, um, so as they, so, so if, all of the investments to reduce carbon intensity per barrel happen to be associated with investments to increase barrels in production, 
not only is a small share of their barrels even exposed to the carbon tax. In fact, if they increase production, they don't have any exposure. It's, it's not 48 cents, it's, it's zero per barrel, which is how it works in California. Now, at the same time, we're saying that to those who produce oil, everyone in Canada who produces food will pay a full $170 per ton on every unit of energy they use and produce. So we've already said, we've got to give the oil producers a bunch of breaks and we've got to tax the hell out of the farmers and ranchers. Now tell me how that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. So if you want to talk about a carve out, there, there is an inequitable carve out right there. Huge. The, the carve out we just gave the Maritimes on heating fuel is nothing by comparison to the carve out that's embedded. I'm going to go one step work further. The government of Canada has agreed that when Quebec imports allowances, greenhouse gas allowances from California, those count as reductions in Canada. And in fact, the government of Canada, some people are currently encouraging other provinces to link their markets with California and Quebec like that. And the OBP, you know what we just described, the oil producers getting the break is also how the California cap and trade rule works. Guess where the most greenhouse gas intensive crude oil in the <laughs> world is produced? I know, I know the answer to that because I worked in that oil patch for three years. And I went around to places like Placerita, which is the most intensive carbon uh, crude oil on the world. Because what happens is it's very the thick. They, they have <laughs> the greenhouse gas intensity, according to the California regulator of the crude being pulled out of the ground at Placerita is double the greenhouse gas intensity for uh, Suncor's operations in the oil sands. Last Last year, Quebecers sent 159 million US dollars to, Cal to, to California to buy credits from the oil producer that we just described in California, who's getting an excess free allocation of credits from the state of California. Our government is saying oil sands in Canada aren't doing enough, but yeah, import all those allowances that the state of California just gave the much more intensive crude oil producers for free, like we've lost our minds. So I'm, I, I gotta say on the one hand, we need a regulation that's gonna make a difference and get real reductions in the oil sands. And we have to stop accepting hot air allowances that have no underlying value that is sending Canadian dollars to subsidize the more greenhouse gas intensive crude oil producers in California. I'll tell you the lesson, I, and I want to make one little thing, it is the, the the volume of Placerita crude oil, which is high intensity, is fairly small. It's so not, I, yeah, I mean, you produce, you produce like, you know, 3.2, 3.4 million barrels a day in the oil sands, and like maybe, I don't know, 25 or 50,000 barrels a day of Placerita oil. So the volumes are a little, and we should yeah. point that out. In well, yeah, yeah. Well, Placerita is one of seven different, and and you're absolutely right. The very greenhouse gas, and I've done the numbers on this one. <laughs> the very green, the most greenhouse gas intensive crude oil sources in California are a small portion of total oil produ production in right. California. So I asked myself if we were able to export from the oil sands. I'm going to sound like pro oil sand, and you know why I'm, I'm wanting us to actually get these reductions really happening. But here's the reality. If I asked myself, if we substituted uh, uh, Suncor synthetic uh, uh, crude oil, SCO. crude oil, yeah. um, at their current reported 2021 reported carbon intensity, as reported as required by law to the state of California. So this number is in the public domain. It's 29 grams CO2 equivalent per megajoule. If we used that one supply, which is relatively high emission intensity for Canadian oil sands, and we're able to substitute it for every source in California that's higher, 
how many tons of reductions would we get and how much more oil sands product would we be exporting to California? We would be increasing oil sands exports at today's emissions levels, no reductions, by somewhere between two to three times. And the substitution of that uh, Suncor synthetic for the higher emitting sources in California would deliver 77 million tons of greenhouse gas reductions globally a year. 77 million tons. So, okay, we've got to be careful here because, uh, you know, this has been one of the arguments uh, from the Alberta government and from the oil and gas industry is, you know, oh, look at the green uh, Alberta oil and gas. If we could only export more of it, we would do a, make all these wonderful uh, emissions reductions in other you're, countries. You're, you're totally right. And I want to be clear because I know what the naysayers are going to do. I am not arguing that's the right solution. Right. I am saying, why are you, Government of Canada, saying Quebec is fine buying all that hot air credit from all of those? If you know, you, you got to do it one way or the other. Either do it my way, which is we're not exporting more, or we are exporting more only if the greenhouse gas intensity is going down way, way faster than anybody's right. talking about right now. Um, but how on earth is it internally logical? It's it's not internally consistent to be laying pressure on the oil sands right now while you're saying to Quebec, yeah, you get a tick because you're importing all of this hot air from all these really high emitters in California. There, it, it, this doesn't make sense. Right. You okay. know, the, the arithmetic doesn't make sense. Gotcha. And I want to make a point here. And that is that escrow came in in 2007. So we've had 16, almost 17 years of it now. And the in, in, the intensity, emissions intensity per barrel of an oil, in the, the average in the oil sands started out, it was like 85 kilograms of CO2 equivalent per barrel, you know, back then. Now it's down around 69 uh, kilograms of CO2 per barrel. So the emissions intensity has been falling, which the industry falsely claims it means emissions are falling because absolute emissions yeah. have risen. This is the key point here oh. is that because, because as you pointed out, supply keeps growing, output keeps growing. What happens is now the uh, oil sands uh, absolute emissions have risen from the mid to high six, uh, 60s of kil uh, total megatons per year now is in the low 80s. A megatons per year. So we actually have more absolute emissions coming out of the oil sands, which ball by itself makes up 11% of Canada's greenhouse gas emissions. You're you're totally right. And, and I'll, I'll admit to you, I didn't really pick up on what was going on and ask myself the question, what's going on here? Uh, looking at oil sands numbers, it was uh, Alcan, which turned into Rio Tinto and the aluminum smelter in BC, where big, big, big noise about reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 50%. Read the small print. It was reducing greenhouse gas intensity per ton of rod aluminum output by 50%. Uh, the smelt, that smelter is the single largest industrial emitter in BC. And uh, very little, if any, reduction in absolute emissions. And I kept saying, what's going on here? What's going on here? And I started looking across a lot of sectors long before I got around to looking at the oil sands and a lot of countries. And you see the same thing every time. No confident C-suite invests in an energy efficiency upgrade in an industrial plant if they're not also investing in a production increase. If your plant justify, doesn't justify a production expansion, uh, expansion or increase, you're looking at a plant that they're just gonna bleed till it dies. You don't put that money in that investment in that plant unless it's associated with a production revenue margin increase, end of story, full stop. That's not unique to the oil sector. That's every sector you can look at. When you go back to the Montreal Protocol, we're saying, Reduce the carbon intensity of the products you deliver to market 
on a, you know, it is an intensity basis. It's percent of your megawatt hours sold. And then what we should be fighting uh, fighting about is given our goals, is that annually recurring reduction rate 5% per annum or three or seven? We should have a big fight about that. And the point is when you put a, a rule like that in place, an oil sands producer or a aluminum producer can still double their output, but the only way they can double their output and comply with the law in their traditional plant is to probably invest in a whole bunch of wind and solar power capacity to get that average down. So you're not saying you can't do it now. You're saying if you think you, there's value in doing it, there's this other value you have to deliver to offset. You let the market decide which way to go. And and the and all we should be fighting over is how how big that percent per year reduction needs to be to given to, to get to our goals and objectives. One company is gonna say, I'm gonna you know, shift out of uh, petroleum intensive fuel and into biofuels. Another company is going to say, I'm going to stay in intensive fuel, but I'm going to have to build a big renewables operating division to stay in, in, in for a while. Right. Okay. So let's bring this conversation all the way around back to where we, we started, Alden, which is the economists uh, are, you know, we're angry and about this exemption that was provided by the federal government for Atlantic Canada on uh, heating oil, uh, carbon tax exemption, and you know, saying that basically it destroyed carbon, Canadian carbon policy is a fatal blow, as uh, University of Calgary economist Trevor Tome wrote. Uh, in, but in this course of this conversation, we've already described a number of exemptions that essentially have bastardized the system anyway. We talk about the oil sands with output-based uh, 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 pricing. We're talking about what's going on in Quebec with their cap and trade and, and credits of Canadian money going down to, to California that are kind of hot air, phony baloney credits. Uh, there, uh, there's, uh, there's other, you know, you brought up uh, uh, aluminum smelter, the Rio Tinto in, in, in BC, on and on and on. The system is already broken. The system was broken right out of right out of the gate. You're and absolutely that... right. And I'm arguing it can't if you're going to stay focused on carbon tax and for reasons we haven't talked about and we might or might not, it can't be fixed. I'll give you one key reason. So I don't think this is a carbon policy disaster. Thank God the door is open, maybe for us to actually have a fulsome debate about what real carbon not pricing, not revenue generation, not government prescribed and have to, if government is in the business of prescribing the solutions, there won't be any solutions that go forward without government subsidies. By definition, that's the way the world works. Carbon capture utilization and storage for the oil sands. Boom. Good, the best, a great example. You know what? And if we had a Montreal protocol type standard, they might decide to, to, to invest in carbon capture and storage. And pay for it themselves. By the way, they're That's asking right. for fifty billion dollars uh, from, right. the, from the governments. If we if we tell them what to do, it's reasonable for them to expect us to pay for at least part of the cost of doing it. If we tell them get the fossil carbon out of the supply chain, they're going to compete with different solutions and strategies. The only thing a market does is compete on price and through innovation to secure and maintain market share. We have to give them regulations that just mobilize that competition. When we're setting prices and prescribing solutions, we're impairing the market's ability to work. I wanna make an, an observation here uh, because the, the proposal that you're making um, seems to, one of its benefits would be simplicity. It's not, it's not complicated. It doesn't take a lot of, you know, it's, it's like you have to do this and it's X percentage over years. We're going to measure it. And if you don't, there's going to be penalties for it, for it. And here's one thing that I've learned that I've learned about the oil and gas industry and, and listeners will know, you know, we finished in July, we did uh, part two of the unethical oil series, which is about conventional oil and gas production in Alberta. We're now working on part three, which is on oil sands mining. Part four will be on oil sands in situ production. But here's an observation. Industry does nothing about problems like this unless government tells them to in the form of legislation and regulation. When government says you must do this, 
they are big public companies and they and, and as a principle of a public company is you always are in compliance with regulation because if you aren't you'll be punished by not only the regulator but by investors investors do not want to be in companies that are outside uh, you know offside on on big regulations like this so the government directing them to ordering them to will get there there's another key and government when they say you must do this it's you must take the pollution precursor out of your supply chain when government says so i'm going to do the lead of gasoline uh the good luck was when our legislatures canada us agreed to order the 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 lead out of gasoline everyone including me was absolutely certain that ethanol was going to be substituted for lead as the oxygen in. and nobody would have signed off on the get the lead out regulation had they not believed they were delivering demand for ethanol particularly to the corn uh, producers uh, the very first ethanol subsidies in the U.S. were signed into law within two weeks of the lead gasoline phase-out regulation because they were so connected. The lucky thing was, is the law said, get the lead out. If the law had said, put the ethanol in, we would have stopped for at least 10 or 20 years. Because in 1978, we didn't understand that there was a limit to the internal combustion engine's ability to operate efficiently with ethanol in, in right. the gasoline. About 15% is the limit. That's right. So in 1978, we got a law saying, you're going to have to get the lead out by 1990. And this is the reduction schedule you've got to comply with. And it starts in 19, uh, 1990 was the out, get it out. 1980 was the start date. We had two years. The oil companies started to develop their more ethanol fuel formulations by mid-1979 we discovered the internal combustion engine 15 percent limit ethanol wasn't going to get the job done everybody said oh no what do we do i used i i i typically say by 1984 and somebody the other day said i got this wrong because i should be saying by 1981 we were looking at four competing gasoline fuel formulations that were unleaded that didn't have any ethanol in them. So we had five solutions, four of which nobody had thought of two years before, because when they were ordered to get the lead out and the way they thought they were gonna do it didn't work, they had to find new ways to do it. If we had said, put the ethanol in, when they found that ethanol wasn't gonna work, we all would have gone back to parliament. We would have put a pause on the regulation. We would have debated which is what's going on with the biofuel standards in the United States right now. The luckiest thing, the only reason we got the lead out is because our legislators thought it was gonna create demand for ethanol. And the best luck we ever had is the legislation said, get the lead out, not put the, the ethanol in. So, we must learn that lesson. And the lesson is just to drive it home and make it very clear is the what we need is a get the greenhouse get the the carbon em emissions out of your products again get it out of your products out of your supply chain yeah. and here's the schedule and we're going to measure it and if you don't do it you're going to be penalized and that's and, it we and, and we don't and go, and go back to simplicity uh i perceive you can write that regulation with one linkage so the linkage has to be how you report your global supply chain emissions you can write that regulation in less than 20 pages. You need one regulation for energy products, one regulation for building products, one regulation for chemicals and fertilizers. You've covered 85% of the inventory. You might wanna have a separate regulation about, and you reduce your methane emissions, do that separately. That's, that's four max regulations it's less than 120 pages in total for all the regulations and i want to go back to the nova scotia precedent the only jurisdiction in the world that has absolutely capped electricity sector emissions transitioning largely from coal to renewables very limited passing through gas go look at that regulation uh and if if the civil servants who were working with me back then on that regulation must be on the floor laughing their heads off right now because that regulation is eight pages. Now, everybody who knows me 
knows that when I write the first draft of the regulation, it's 150 pages. <laughs> I, the only reason it's eight pages is because a bunch of people, including someone named George Foote, know how to make sense out of the garbage that I write. But eight to 20 pages max, all you need to get it done. May I point out as an aside that one of the uh, big success stories in oil and gas has been the reduction of methane emissions, which are you know 83 times more uh, dangerous than CO2 over the first 20 years of, of, the, emi of the emission. And so the oil and gas is, is, I think they're already down around 40, 45%, uh, you know, but then there are issues, there, there are issues around uh, whether our measurements are accurate, but that, that, that's a bit of a, a red herring at the, in this conversation. The point I want to make here is that it didn't happen through carbon pricing. The federal government, the, the provincial governments uh, said, we are going to meet these targets by these dates, and and you're going to figure out, oil and gas companies, how to get them down. So they brought in, you know, pneumatic uh, equipment and stuff, you know, and they brought in, you know, they electrified some stuff and they then they fixed, you know, there was less uh, uh, flaring and, and venting. And I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that they could do that the, uh, that, uh, you know, the government's companies largely figured out on their own, and it, it had nothing to do with carbon pricing. The um, there's history there that I've been involved in, and uh, uh, I think we we need to have a whole talk about again why carbon pricing doesn't work, or because that's information we need to inform our our go forward discussion. But uh, and it's interesting if you went back to Trevor Tome or most of the academics who are saying. A marginal carbon tax of $170 a ton will cause the oil sands to reduce emissions. The theory they are applying is that they're saying that industry attaches that $170 value to every ton, even though it doesn't apply to every ton, because that's because they could make 170 bucks. It's 170 bucks if they could reduce emissions and sell them into the marketplace. So there's a theory that the marginal cost, you know, directs industry investment. Reality is different from that. When you look at the methane uh, emissions, even now throughout all of North America, go and ask the, the gas producers to show you the economic rents they apply to all of the inputs in the supply chain. And even if you're sitting in a period where it looks like the retail price of natural gas, you know, delivered to your house is $11 per gigajoule, you will see that the value they attach to the gas they pull out of the ground at the top of the supply chain is never more than a buck a gigajoule and is usually around 25 cents. So when you're in that situation and somebody is saying, reduce the methane emissions. And why aren't you doing it? Because that's methane that you could be converting to marketable product. You're talking to a system that has assigned such a small rent, such a small value to the methane, which they wouldn't have a company if they didn't have the methane, that you can't make the economics of controlling the methane emissions work. You just can't. And that's why just say do it is is the right answer. Another analogy is, and there's it's not just just do it to one. The cafe standards, you know, the new vehicles, anybody who supplies new vehicles to the market, again, we're back at supply where it has has to meet a fleet average emissions standard as well as fuel efficiency standard. Why is that regulation? It's not as effective as it could be. Small amendments to CAFE would just blow it away, but it's still pretty effective. And why is CAFE important? And why did the whole auto industry lobby to keep it when Trump said he was gonna dump it? Because there are some things where you as a competitor can't afford to do it unless everybody in your marketplace has to do it. And I think with methane, we're, it's a little bit like cafe. None of the automakers can afford to be delivering more efficient vehicles to the marketplace unless all of them have to. 
and why. How many, like, what are the best-selling cars and vehicles uh, still in the world? The least efficient ones. It's not like the market is demanding <laughs> the more efficient vehicles. I, I, I want to close our conversation with this, this point, uh, uh, Alden, and that is uh, because I have a lot of respect for people like Trevor Tome. I mean, I, I, I really do. I know you have a, a little different so point of view. Say, and that... I have to say, I do too, but we have to say, where does the theory not match real life? Yeah, yeah. And that and that's fine. And I think that's what you're doing is you're raising this argument. And, 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 uh, uh, you know, there's, and there's plenty of other economists, uh, you know, Mark Descartes and Kent Fellows and then Andrew Leach and on and on and on, who have, who have been in the, the you know, the carbon pricing camp. And that's fine. And this is not an attack on them. This is this is uh, from my point of view. From my point of view, is that this, we now have X number of years, depending on the jurisdiction, experience with carbon pricing. We haven't seen the kind of reductions that we we would have expected or or that we had hoped for. And the integrity of the system, in my opinion, has already been compromised by all of these exemptions and output based pricing and stuff that we talked about. And so. It now is the time to broaden the conversation and say, maybe we need to take another approach. And and you have argued for a more fulsome conversation. And that's really what this is, this is all about, is the more fulsome conversation so that we can get to a better system that achieves the kind of greenhouse gas reductions that Canada needs. Right? With the confidence that we have succeeded in not necessarily as extreme, but we have succeeded in the past. It's not like we have to figure out something we haven't figured out before. So let's just really pay attention to the history when we have that more fulsome conversation. What has worked in the past? There's an there's answers. There's answers to that question. Right. And and fair enough. So on, on that on that note, Alden, thank you very much for this. Really appreciate this. this has been a, a, a very uh, enlightening conversation. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. So let's talk about details of carbon pricing in some future discussion. We'll have you back. Thank you.